this good? Is it finished? Okay, you dismiss your classes. Adults, please turn to the book of Acts in the second chapter of the book of Acts. chapter 2 and beginning with verse 1 through verse 4 Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 and when the day of Pentecost was fully come they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Say, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We thank you for your word today. We ask God that you would inspire me to speak it, preach it, Lord, and teach it. Lord, we ask God you inspire the hearers to hear. We thank you, Lord God, for your goodness and your mercy in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. All right, this morning we're going to continue on our study, the doctrine of the Holy Ghost, the teaching about the Holy Ghost. We began it last Sunday morning, it's very important for us to understand uh, this doctrine. I believe we left off teaching you about the Holy Ghost in the Old Testament and the Holy Ghost uh, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Ghost uh, was referred to in creation in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. We have Genesis 2 at verse 7, man was created, but God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then we have reference to the beast and the spirit of God. Uh, in the creation or the making of beasts in Psalm 104, verse 30. And then we see redemption also in the Old Testament with the Holy Ghost striving with man in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3. And then we see uh, Noah is quickened to preach by the Holy Ghost in the Old Testament according to 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. In the days of the prophets, Israel resisted the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of God spoke through them in the Old Testament. And the Bible tells us that the scripture was given by inspiration. That would include the Old Testament as well. And then in the Old Testament, he worked in Israel with the temporary indwelling that came on them uh, in dreams, Genesis 41, 38, interpretation of those dreams, wisdom, the tabernacle, uh, so on and so forth, Exodus 28, verse 3. And then we come to the New Testament days. God indwells us, not just comes upon us. So if you go to John 14, it will show you that. John 14, verse 16. There is a difference in our age and in that age in the sense that now we no longer have the Holy Ghost coming upon us. And it is not just for particular individuals, but it's for all flesh. Whosoever believes uh, can receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And when we receive it, it is not a temporary uh, thing that happens. If you look in John 14, the Bible tells us here that uh, 
Verse 16, he said, I will pray the Father who shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. So verse 16 tells us that when the Holy Ghost comes upon us in the Testament days, that it's a forever experience, not just a temporary experience. Uh, John 7, 37. Let's go over there and look at that verse. Jesus making reference here. He says, if you believe as the Scripture has said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. He did this on the Feast of Tabernacles. So John 7, 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. He that believeth on me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 38. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So we have a promise from Jesus here in his earthly ministry that he would pour out the Holy Ghost, and we would receive that if we believe as the Scripture has said. So it's uh, not just a temporary thing, but we're going to receive it like water flowing in and through us. And then he says in Acts 2, verse 38, it will be for all flesh. The Old Testament, it was prophet, priest, and king, and they were known as the anointing of the Lord. And we come to the New Testament days, and we're baptized in the body of Christ by the Spirit of the Lord, and you become a prophet and a priest and a king unto the Lord yourself. All right, so that's where we left off. Now let's get into the word of the Lord, and let's talk about the Holy Ghost in the life of the believer. All right, John 3, turn over there. Holy Ghost in the life of the believer. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Just a moment to turn there. All right, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. He is the master teacher of Israel in his day. And uh, the Lord tells him, he says in verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So number one, must be born again, and you can't even understand the kingdom of God. That's what the word see means. Then verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Look at verse 3 again. Jesus said, Except a man be born again. Say, born again. Okay, that's where we get the term regeneration. Regeneration simply means, that word regeneration simply means a new birth, okay? Or to be born again, or born from above. So we're born by the Spirit, according to the word of the Lord. So in the life of the believer, the Holy Ghost then uh, regenerates us. It brings us into a new birth. Now, we are indwelt by the Spirit. Let's go to Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 9. 
that you're not in the spirit, or that you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Okay? So this verse is telling us that the spirit of God indwells us. It doesn't just come upon us, but he literally indwells the believer. So at the new birth, go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It tells us right here in this verse, for they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So when the Holy Ghost came on the day of Pentecost and filled the early church, beginning the church age, the Bible tells us they were all filled. They all filled. Now, also at the new birth, that's when you are indwelled. So two things happen to you, really more than two, but these two we're talking about first of all is that when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, number one, he literally indwells you, comes inside, and lives inside of you. Number two, he fills you. So when you got baptized with the Holy Ghost or filled with the Holy Ghost, God indwelt you. So he not only indwelt you, but he fills you with his spirit. Okay? So he indwells our spirits, and then he fills us. Let's go over to Romans 8. Well, and the Bible tells us it gives us assurance of salvation. And in Romans 8, and verse 16, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Okay? So it, it brings new birth to the believer, it indwells our spirit, and then it brings us assurance of salvation. So if you start doubting your salvation, the Holy Ghost works inside of you, giving you assurance of your salvation. The Bible says that he's bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Okay? Assurance of salvation. So new birth indwells our spirit salvation assurance and then fills us acts 2 and verse 4 now that word fill again when you receive the baptism of the holy ghost he came and indwelt you he regenerated you he filled you but after he indwells you and fills you initially there's an ongoing feeling filling of the spirit that doesn't mean that we lose god what it is when it says we are filled with the Spirit, that means we're losing control. So once you get indwelt by the Spirit, you get filled with the Spirit at the beginning, but as you live your Christian life, it's an ongoing process of being filled with the Spirit. That means there's many infillings. Only one baptism of the Spirit, but many infillings of the Spirit. And that simply means is that God is in control. Okay, so if your flesh is in control, Whatever, and you go to that prayer room and you pray, and all of a sudden you yield your life to God. That's what it means by being filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean that God moved out. You don't get more of God, you understand, than you got when you were filled with the Spirit initially. I don't get more of God ever. When God comes and lives inside of you, He comes and indwells you, and He fills you at that time. He doesn't just give you part of the Spirit. He comes initially to indwell you and to fill you. But there are many infillings of the Spirit. 
which means this. I don't get more of God. He gets more of me. We're talking about being filled with the Spirit. You know, don't be filled with wine. We're in this excess. Ephesians says that. But be filled with the Spirit. He said, don't drink alcohol. But he said, be filled with the Spirit. That means be in the control of the Spirit of the living God. So I don't get more of God than I when I became a born-again believer, but he gets more of me. So that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, all right? Okay, Acts 2, verse 4. And then it enables us to speak in tongues. So let's go over here and uh, reference Acts 2, 4 again. So that when they received the baptism of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, this is what happened. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 2, verse 4. Okay, so when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the dwelling of the Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit of God, it regenerates you. It puts you in the kingdom of God. You understand that? Then there's an ongoing control of the Spirit of God in your life as you yield your life to the Lord. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit after you become a believer. And then the Bible tells us here that ye begin to speak with other tongues as the initial evidence or sign that you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So the baptism of the Holy Ghost enables us to speak with tongues. Now, that doesn't mean that God speaks in tongues, because God doesn't speak in tongues. Okay? So it says, They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. They're doing the speaking, but God is giving the utterance. But God is not speaking in tongues. So whenever you speak in tongues, when you get filled with the Spirit initially and then thereafter, you continue to speak in tongues. You do the speaking. God's not speaking in tongues through you. As you yield your mind, as you yield your tongue, then God takes control of that tongue and he gives you utterance. And as you utter that out, you're the one that does the speaking. And this is where a lot of people miss it when they speak the Holy Ghost. They think God is just going to take over and some some way just separate himself from them and somehow utter himself through them without them talking. He doesn't work that way. He, you can't just, okay, like this. You understand? And then all of a sudden, God starts speaking in tongues through you. Does that make sense? Okay, is anything coming out when I do that? Do I have God in me? Yes, I have the Holy Ghost. I have the Holy Ghost, but I don't just open my mouth. And then all of a sudden, this voice starts talking out of me, the Spirit of God speaking in tongues. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? You have to do the speaking. I have to do the speaking as I yield to the Lord, okay? And it's it's not a hard thing to receive. You just, Lord, I invite your spirit to come inside of me. And then you ask him, he comes in, and you yield your tongue, but you do the talking, and God gives you the utterance. All right? I know I made it real difficult when I came to the church raised in the Lutheran church, didn't know anything about the Holy Ghost, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, receiving the Holy Ghost, nothing about this, all right? And so I made it very difficult to receive the Holy Ghost because when I came to church, I was waiting for God to take over me, throw me down on the ground and lose control, you know, of myself, lose control of my tongue and everything. It doesn't work that way. And then finally, after about six months after being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, I finally understood that I'm the one that's going to be doing the talking. And I just yield my tongue, and I just let the Lord take over. And he enables us to speak with other tongues. He gives us the utterance, but you have to do 
hear the gospel. Okay? Depends how I'm saying. If it's not like that, nothing's going to come out. Because God don't speak in tongues. They heard him speak with tongues. As the Spirit gives the utterance. So we do the talking. He gives us the utterance. We yield to him and we speak in tongues. And it's one of the most really seriously, it's the easiest gift I think you can receive from God. Amen. I've seen people go a long time without being healed. And I've seen a lot of people go a long time without receiving baptism in the Holy Ghost. But receiving the Holy Ghost is so easy. It's just a gift that you have to receive. Okay? If I had a dollar bill, say, anybody want it? Just come up here and get it. Pray with them for a dollar. But if I said, I got a hundred dollars up here. Anybody want this hundred? Well, it, you wouldn't receive it. You wouldn't get it unless you came in. Receive it, right? Okay. Same thing with the Holy Ghost. God has provided it as a gift. It's not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. It's based on what Jesus Christ did, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection for us. And as a result of what he did, by faith, we receive that spirit. But we have to receive it. But it's very easy. Amen. It's just like I had a hundred dollar bill. They come get it. Somebody run up here and grab that. They take off. But it's just that easy to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You just receive it. It is a gift from God. Amen. So finally, after I received the Holy Ghost, I realized how hard I was making it. But it's so hard. It's so easy to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. All you have to do is just believe, ask for the Spirit to come in. When you do, He comes in and you do the speaking. Most people say, well, I think that was me talking. You're right. Don't let that throw you. I don't know if that was God. I think that was me. You're right. Well, it was God giving you the utterance because he's the one that enabled you to do it, but you still had to do the speaking. Okay? So it enables us to speak in tongues. Acts 2, 4, Acts 10, 44 through 46, the Gentiles received the Holy Ghost. Began to speak with other tongues. It wasn't just the Jews. It wasn't just for the twelve. It wasn't just for the hundred fifteen in the upper room. In Acts nineteen verse six, we have believers in Ephesus. In Mark sixteen seventeen, let's go over there. Mark sixteen. This is what Jesus said about signs that will follow the true believer. If you're a true believer. Let's start with verse 15. This is known as the Great Commission. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You see that? Now notice he doesn't say, He that believeth and is saved shall be baptized. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So believing and being baptized is Baptism is part of salvation. According to Jesus, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So one of the signs that follow a true believer is they shall speak with new tongues. 
That simply means a tongue that's new to you. It may not be new as far as the world is concerned. It may not be new as far as somebody else is concerned. For example, if I start speaking German, and there's a German in the house, and they hear me speaking German, well, obviously it's not new to him or her, but it's new to me because I didn't learn that language. And so the tongue he's talking about that you and I receive, it enables us, you know, when we speak in tongues, enables us to speak in tongues, is an unknown tongue to us, it's a new tongue to us, but not necessarily to somebody else. Because they may have learned that language, for example, the German language, and they can talk it, but if I have never learned it, and I'm sitting there speaking in German, and they hear me speaking it, it's new to me, it's unknown to me, but not new to them and unknown to them. Does that make sense? But it's a supernatural experience. You get that? It's not a natural thing where you where you learn how to speak the language. It's a supernatural experience when God comes inside of you and you yield your tongue and you start speaking in this language, you don't even know what language you're speaking in. Amen? You don't even know what you're saying. But the person, you know, in the house that knows the language, now you're speaking in German. Really? I didn't know that. Can you imagine? Supernatural. So when you begin to speak with tongues, you may not realize this, but the Bible talks about tongues of men and of angels. So when he enables you to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and you start speaking with tongues, it is a supernatural experience whereby you are speaking with tongues of men and angels that you didn't know. It's supernaturally God is speaking through you. And if somebody were in the congregation, for example, the German language I'm talking about, I'm speaking it supernaturally, they'd say, hey, you're speaking German. But really, I didn't know that. They know it because they speak it as their natural tongue. I'm speaking as a supernatural tongue. Okay? Now, Azusa Street Revival, when the Azusa Street Revival took place, when the outpouring of the Holy Ghost took place in the early 1900s, there was a Jewish man that went into that revival and... Um, he was a Hebrew-speaking Jew. And he went to that revival, and he didn't necessarily believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He just went there to see what was going on in that revival. And when he walked into that revival, this Hebrew-speaking Jew heard somebody in that congregation, that group of people, speaking fluent Hebrew. And they had never learned that language before. I mean, they didn't go to school for it. This was something that was supernatural. And obviously, when that Hebrew speaking Jew heard that person speaking in Hebrew, he believed in the baptism of the Holy Ghost because they didn't learn that, acquire that naturally, supernaturally came from God. Amen? And I'm sure the person didn't even know what they were saying. Praise God. I remember one day I was in here praying right before I was going to Taiwan and uh, it was either the, the second, I think the second or the Taiwan and I was in here praying about that trip to Taiwan, and one of the sisters was in the church over here. She was praying, and she started speaking, and I know a few words in Hebrew, and she was uttering a word about the dragon or the serpent in Hebrew. And I, I went and I asked her after we prayed, I said, did you know what you were saying when you said that word? She said, no. I said, you were praying against the dragon or the serpent. And that's obviously the spirit that we have to fight when we go to Taiwan is that dragon spirit that's in China, and she was over there praying, and when she was saying language connected to the dragon and the serpent taking authority over that, uh, I'm sure as far as in reference to our trip to Taiwan. She didn't 
you to know Jesus saying that way. You didn't know it, but he's the word. You know, I don't know Hebrew, but I know a little bit. And so I'm just telling you, sometimes God, uh, he will speak Hebrew to a person. Or he'll speak Greek or he'll speak Chinese to a person. All kinds of supernatural utterances that come from God. And it may be a known tongue by some men, but unknown to you and me to you. Okay? Now, through the Spirit revival also, when the Holy Ghost was poured out, and they were experiencing glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues, there were people that literally went into those meetings, interpreters, okay, linguists. They, they, they called them, or what they're called, linguists. And they tried to disprove what was happening to them. Okay? They said, well, this person is speaking in their tongue, but there's no known tongue like that. So this is not a real experience. You can't disprove it that way. Because the Bible says that the tongues of men and angels. So you may not be, when you're speaking in tongues, you may not be speaking in the tongue of a known tongue in the world. You may be speaking in the tongue of an angel. And there's no linguist in the world, language expert, that can obviously say, I can identify that language. Just so you understand. It's an awesome experience. When you see the baptism of the Holy Ghost, when you start speaking in tongues, I remember the first time I experienced it, it was just totally awesome. And now the problem is we become so used to it, we speak in tongues every day. Okay? You speak in tongues every day, you kind of become used to it. But that's a supernatural experience from God. It'd be awesome, wouldn't it, if somebody was speaking in tongues and somebody who knew the language said, you're speaking in tongues. That's what happens. And when we gather as a congregation and we're speaking in tongues, there's no telling how many different languages are represented in this church. Identifiable languages that are spoken in the world. Amen? Now let me share this with you. There is a tribe that uh, they gathered, and this tribe, these, these tribesmen, you know, uh, this one particular individual filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost in this tribe, Indian tribe, would make this strange sound like. Okay? And the pastor actually went to this saint and said, You need to stop doing this because that, that's not a tongue. Something like that. Alright? So the pastor didn't know what was going on. Or I'm going to re re repeat myself. He went to this saint and said, You need to stop doing that. That's not an unknown tongue. Come to find out it was. That it was actually the announcing of the arrival of Jesus in a foreign tongue, not known even to that pastor. Are y'all with me here today? But they, they actually do this in certain tribal uh, areas where there's going to be the arrival of a king supposedly. Something like that. And it would have come. Announcing the arrival of so you can't, you, you know, you're sitting in church today, you say, okay, that doesn't sound like a tongue to me. That don't sound like a language to me. Well, you, who are you to judge that? Do you know every language in the earth? Sister uh, Edmonds told us that when we were in Taiwan this last year. In Asia, didn't she? Praise God. You might hear somebody doing something. Oh, that's not a tongue. It might be. Supernatural utterance. Unknown to you and it's new to you, but it's not to the person that obviously knows the language. Praise God. 
they were they gathered together. This guy was this person would do that. The whole time he's announcing his albums are ready for the king of kings and the king. Amen. And this is the way, according to the book of James, that you know you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, because your tongue is the most unruly member in the body. You can't control your tongue. How many of you ever tried to control your tongue without the Holy Ghost? Can't do it. You cannot control your tongue without the Holy Ghost. So when the Holy Ghost comes inside of you and fills you, then He takes control of your tongue. You know that you have yielded to His presence. Because He comes in and He takes control of your tongue, which is the most unruly member in the body. And if he controls your tongue, then he controls the rest of you. Just like a rudder on a ship controls a large ship, a little rudder on that ship controls that whole ship. So that if God comes inside of you and you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and he yields your tongue, you start speaking in tongues, you know that you've yielded your whole life to the Lord. And he can control your whole body, not just that one part of your body. So he knows what he's doing. Amen. It's a promise to us. So it enables us to receive uh, the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues, unknown tongues. And then obviously we're baptized into the body of Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now some people teach, some denominations teach that that's this experience not for us. Obviously they're speaking out of ignorance or fear uh, or formalism. Ignorance, fear, formalism. Thank God for the truth. First Corinthians chapter twelve. Now the Bible makes reference to us being baptized into the Spirit. Okay, look at it. Verse one. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. First Corinthians twelve. Ye know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus cursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord's, but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of the administrations of the same Lord. We go on, he talks about uh, the different administrations and different gifts of the Spirit. Go on down a little bit further. The Bible tells us, verse 12, Whereas the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Okay? With me? All right. Being filled with the Spirit, being baptized with the Holy Ghost, so on and so forth, being born of the Spirit, it's all the same thing. Okay. But baptism of the Holy Ghost particularly has to do with us being placed into the body of Christ. So when I receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, He baptizes me into His body. Okay, So when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the reference particularly has to do with the body of Christ. You understand that? Okay, let's go over to uh, Acts 1 and 8. And we're talking about the Holy Ghost in the life of the believer. Gives us power to witness. 
Now remember the, uh, the disciples had walked with Jesus. Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, risen from the dead, ascended up, sat on the right hand of God. Uh, but he told them something very particular. He told them to go and tarry until they received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, okay? In Acts 1 and 8, are you there? He says, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Got that? Okay, go back to Luke 24. As Jesus is being received up into heaven from the Mount of Olives, Acts uh, or Luke uh, 24 49. He says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Okay? So he's walked with his disciples. He's been crucified, dead, buried, risen from the dead. Now he tells his disciples to go and tarry. Wait in Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. That means they absolutely cannot preach, they cannot teach about him until they receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So they're going to tarry until they be endued. We're talking about endowment. That means to be clothed. Right? So he told them to go and tarry in Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. That means clothed with the Spirit. Okay? So they couldn't preach. They couldn't teach about him until they received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So Acts 1 and 8 tells us he was also speaking here. With me here. He promised them in verse 5 they would be baptized with the Holy Ghost, right? You understand that? Okay. What's going to happen when they receive the Holy Ghost? They shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has uh, come upon them. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Okay, so this was a requirement of the Lord before the disciples could, could witness of, about him was that they received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So they literally tarried, they waited for the outpouring of the Spirit, and after they received the Spirit, then that's when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached the message of salvation. So give you an eyewitness, uh, power to witness. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Gifts of the Spirit in the life of the believer. I'm not going to read all these verses, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives you nine gifts of the Spirit. Okay? There's one baptism of the Holy Ghost, many infillings of the Holy Ghost, one baptism of the Holy Ghost, one birth of the Spirit. Okay? Now, when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, then God can work through you as a believer in the nine gifts of the Spirit. And that's not all the gifts of the Spirit. But 1 Corinthians 12 talks about nine of them. Okay? Nine gifts of the Spirit. So let's start looking look at seven. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. This is the way God is going to manifest himself within the church once he fills us with his Spirit. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. 
For one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these work of that one and the self-same Spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. Okay? So in the life of the believer, then once you get filled with the Holy Ghost, then you can expect to be used by God in the gifts of the Spirit, one of these nine gifts of the Spirit. It doesn't mean you have that gift. You understand that? It's the way God will work through you in one any particular time. Okay? Well, what's the best gift of the Spirit? Right. It's the one that you need at that time. Okay? So you may need a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge at the same time. Okay? And then you may need healing. You may need prophecy. Whatever is needed at that particular time becomes the best gift, best gift of the Spirit. But it's not that I have that gift. See, God may may use you to, to um, by, the, by His Spirit through you impart a, a gift of healing, or work a miracle through you, okay, or give a tongue, a message of tongues, and interpretation in the church. He may use you and give you a word of knowledge about a situation or a word of wisdom, how to do something. But that doesn't mean that you have that particular gift. Can't walk around and say, "Well, I have the gift of healing." You can't walk around and say, "Well, I have the gift of prophecy." You can't walk around and say, "I have the gift of miracles." You understand what I'm telling you? It's the Spirit of God manifesting Himself through you, and whatever is needed at that particular time is the way He's going to operate through you. Sometimes you may not even realize what's going on. It may sort of dawn on you, though, as you're talking to somebody. He gave you a word of knowledge about them, and they gave you a word of wisdom. Why? Does that make sense to you? Okay. Now, there are particular offices, though, in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. There are some people that are not just used in the gifts of the Spirit. For example, the gift of prophecy. There are some people who are prophets. So those people have the office of a prophet, and those people can say, yes, I have the gift of prophecy. But if you're not in one of those designated offices, uh, you understand, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, you can't say that you have a particular gift. So there's a higher level when you talk about the offices that are in the church, that God placing certain people in the church and putting, these, putting them in these offices. But normally, the believer can't say they have the gift of the Spirit, any particular gift, because you don't want to limit yourself. God can work through you to manifest through you any one of these nine gifts of the Spirit at any time. If you walk around and say, well, I got the gift of prophecy, and we're going to have to go to another brother in the church for the gift of healing, or we're going to have to go to another another sister in the church for tongues and interpretation. Well, that no, that's not how God works. It's according to His will. He's going to choose who He wants to use in any particular time in that church. And one person may speak in tongues, another person give an interpretation, the next service is a completely different person. It doesn't have to be the same person all the time. Amen? In fact, some of you, God wants, I'll just narrow it down to tongues and interpretation. 
God wants to use some of you in that gift. But every time the Spirit rises up in you and starts giving you this, this message in tongues, you quench that because you're afraid that it's not God or something like that. But God wants, I've been in services where I knew the Lord wanted to speak through somebody with tongues and interpretation, and it wasn't me. But I knew he wanted to, and I just waited on the Lord. And sometimes the person would yield to the Spirit and speak with the message, and the interpretation would come, and sometimes they didn't. But that doesn't mean that God didn't want to speak in tongues and interpretation. It's going to be determined by the maturity of the believer and their ability to not quench the Holy Ghost. Okay. Now, if you hear somebody that over and over and over used by God in the same gift of the Spirit, like, for example, tongues and interpretation, it is because he knows that that person will yield. It's not that nobody else can be used in those gifts, but he knows that person is going to yield to his Spirit in that gift. Okay? And these gifts are literally spiritual. And God wants to use you. He wants to. Now, I don't get used very often. In fact, I remember being used in tongues and interpretation. Maybe once or twice. Can't really remember it. Since then. But oftentimes, God wants to use you in these gifts and you quench them because you don't have faith. Or you lack confidence or you're not prayed up enough. Or you're not fasted enough. If you're not fasting for the gifts of the Spirit, you're fasting to get yourself out of the way. You're fasting to get your, 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 you know, your soul is in control. Your carnality is in control. So when you pray and you fast, it gets that out of the way. The reason why some God wants to use people, all of you in this church, if you have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, God wants to use you in the life of the believer. He wants to manifest these gifts of the Spirit in and through your life. Amen? But you can't say, I have it or I own it. God wants to use whoever he wants to, whoever he can. But you have to be a prayed up person. You have to be fasted up because you've got to get yourself out of the way. You have to get unbelief out of your mind. You have to start walking in faith. Okay? Does that make sense? How many want to be used in the gifts of the Spirit? How many have ever been used in the gifts of the Spirit? Well, if you haven't, it's not God's fault. Sometime encouragement, though. God wants you to be used in the gifts of the Spirit. And a lot of times, if any of you lift your hand, and you didn't lift your hand because you're thinking about miracles or healing, you're thinking about tongues and interpretation, you're thinking about a prophetic word in the house, you know. And you didn't lift your hand because you didn't think that you've ever been used that way. But what about a word of knowledge? God gave you a word. The word's going to fly. It's not for a job. You got the job. No man told you where to go get the job. But you just had something in your spirit come up and tell you, go and apply for that job, and you got the job. You didn't realize it, but it was a word of knowledge from the Lord. Or you were talking to somebody, and you're counseling or you're advising them, and all of a sudden, how did you know that about me? Well, nobody told me. Did I say something about you that... Accurate? Yeah. How did you know that? Well, it must have been God because nobody told me that. That's called a word of knowledge. You're going to say, okay, here's what you do now. 
with this. That's the word of wisdom. What to do with that. And a lot of times you're going through life and it's not like something hits you, you know, oh, I'm getting ready to be used in the gifts of the Spirit. Here we go. Boom. You know, it, it, it's not like that. It, it's just like breathing. It's just like life. It's just a part of who you are as a believer. I mean, and it's a supernatural thing that takes you beyond your senses. It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome way to live. Because you're not limited just to your carnal, natural five senses. But you can be used supernaturally by God. God will tell you where to go. He'll tell you to avoid this situation. He'll tell you how to handle problems in your life. Give you a word of wisdom. If you're not praying, you're not seeking God, He can't tell you how to handle problems. He wants to use every one of you in the gifts of the Spirit. I feel the Lord this morning. It's not like something hit me. I just feel in the Lord today to emphasize to you that this is a part of being a believer. That God wants to use every one of you in the gifts of the Spirit. And he wrote a carnal church named Corinthians. And he said it to them in 1 Corinthians 1 and 7 that you would come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of the Lord. These gifts of the Spirit are all the way up to the coming of the Lord. Has He come back yet? Does He visit this earth? No. So that you would come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of the Lord. He said that to a carnal church. If He said that to a carnal church, if we're not carnal, then we should come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of the Lord. We should see all of these manifestations of God's Spirit in our church all the time. You'll pray, you'll seek God, and you'll become sensitive, and you'll start walking in faith. God can use you in the gifts of Amen. Now, He's the head. We're just the body. He's the head. I want His will to be done. I want Him to manifest Himself in and through me. It's not to glorify flesh. It's not so people can say, whoa, that person's really spiritual, you know. It's never about the person that's being used by God in the gifts of the Spirit. Okay? If God starts using in the gifts of the Spirit and you start taking credit for it and saying, yeah, that was me and I'm really something spiritual and I'm awesome in God, then you're probably going to fix somebody else next time. Because the gifts of the Spirit are to never glorify anybody but Jesus Christ. They are to glorify God. And yes, we can respect and we can honor those that are being used by God, but it's to never glorify the flesh. It's always to glorify Jesus Christ. Okay, so thank you, Lord. So a person starts bragging, you know, about the gifts of the Spirit and how they're used by God. And, okay, well, the next time you hear them, they probably never come back. Because that's how they get better. You understand what I'm saying? It's to edify the body of Christ. It's to build up the body of Christ. It's to glorify Jesus Christ. Never the person that's being used by the Spirit. And we've got glory hogs in the church of the living God. Because they want attention. Okay? And if they don't get attention, they'll throw their little temper tantrums and they'll, you know, all create all kinds of problems because they're not getting attention. It's not about you or I getting attention. It's about Jesus Christ receiving the glory. Amen. It's about the church growing. It's about the church being edified. And God wants to use everybody in this church in the gifts of the Spirit. Now listen to me. We're not talking about talent. We're talking about supernatural 
workings of God in the life of the believer. Something that the believer could not, the individual could not do without the Spirit of God doing it through them. We're not talking about your skill set. We're not talking about your uh, talent or your ability, your natural ability. We're talking about the supernatural gift of the Spirit. Everybody understand? And they're only used by the Spirit in the gifts. I do. Amen. In the life of the believers. Let me read it to you again. First Timothy chapter 7, 12, verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man who profit with all. Profit the body of Christ. For one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge, by the same Spirit, to another faith, by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing, by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now notice that it doesn't say translation, it says interpretation. I'm almost tempted to preach these this morning, but I don't have time. I need to get going here, all right? But for the sake of your understanding, especially in the area of tongue interpretation, because this happens often in the church, visible signs, visible manifestation of God. It doesn't say tongues and translation. It says tongues and interpretation. That's why if you hear somebody speaking a long message in tongues, and then let's say the person that interprets it, or if they interpret it themselves, they've just interpreted the three or four words. You're going, well, you gave a message in tongues that was 50 words long, and then you interpreted it with three words. So that must not be God. No, you just don't understand. Because it's not a word-for-word -word translation of the tongues. It's an interpretation of the tongues. Right? So praise the Lord. So these supernatural gifts of the Spirit are not natural, they're not talent. They are God's manifestation of His presence within that body. It's a power. It's reference directly to His power in the Spirit of Church. Okay? Now, 1 Timothy chapter 12, 13, and 14. One study the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Timothy 12, 13, and 14 gives you how these spirits are to be governed in the body. There's a certain way they should be operated. There's an order within these gifts of the Spirit, the way they should work within the body of Christ. Okay? Does that make sense? So if you want to know about it, more about them, read 1 Timothy chapter 12, 13, and 14. Okay? Praise the Lord. For example, while I'm up here preaching and teaching, somebody jumps up. They start speaking in tongues, you know. And they interrupt all the time. Every time the word's being preached, they're interrupting the church service. That's probably not God. That's probably the devil. But there's an order in the house. Oftentimes what will happen when God gets ready to move with tongues and interpretation is everybody will get quiet and feed the preacher. Because the preacher knows and the body knows God should move. Holy heaven comes on the church. And you may be just going crazy in worship, and all of a sudden, holy heaven comes on the church. And you have tongues and interpretation. But it's never going to interrupt, constantly interrupt, and get where you just, you just. So the gifts of the Spirit have to be uh, in order, they have to be government, and it's by the word of the Lord. 
So the gift of spirit and ability. So you're understanding what now? In the life of the believer, we have a new birth. We're dwelt by the spirit. Salvation assurance from the Holy Ghost, which fills us. We're enabled to speak with other tongues. Gives us the power to witness. Uh, we receive the gifts of the spirit uh, by the Holy Ghost in the life of the believer. Now, Corinthian church as a whole, go back to Acts 2. The church as a whole, the Bible says, Verse 1 of Acts 2, that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all joined toward one place. Okay. So we have a feast, a feast of the Lord called the Feast of Pentecost. 50 days after the resurrection. Pentecost simply means 50. It's 50 days after first fruits or 50 days after the resurrection. So Jesus resurrected from the dead 50 days later. Or 53 days after his crucifixion. 53 days after his crucifixion and 50 days after his resurrection in fulfillment of Pentecost, the Feast of 50, if you will, the Holy Ghost was poured out. So that in reference to the church then, the Feast of Pentecost is the, the feast, the type of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost upon the church on, on that particular day. It was a fulfillment, if you understand what I'm saying, a fulfillment of the feast of Pentecost. So that's why we talk about we're Pentecostal. That's not a denomination. Some people have made it a denomination, but it's not a denomination. It is an experience. Pentecostal is to be a person who understands that the feast of Pentecost was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, literal feast called Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost was poured out and they started speaking with everything. I don't have time to get into all those details. If you go back 50 days after Israel crossed the Red Sea, they went to Mount Sinai and received the law 50 days after the crossing of the Red Sea. So we have the crossing of the Red Sea, the picture of the resurrection. And then 50 days after that, they go to Mount Sinai, receive the tables of the law. And Jewish history, Jewish tradition says that when that law was given, it was given in seven different languages. So now, on the birthday of the church, the church receives the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the outpouring of God's Spirit on that particular feast. And just like the Jews say, when the law was given, it was spoken in 70 languages, we have languages in and through the believer on the day of Pentecost. So, Pentecost for us is not just a, a literal celebration uh, on a particular day. It is an experience. That is fulfilled by receiving baptism of the Holy Ghost. Okay, another thing that's connected to that. So, in reference to the church, then we have it um, being fulfilled. Pentecost is fulfilled. Uh, so, Pentecost foreshadowed this. Matthew 16. And by this, the Lord is building his church. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right, so in John chapter uh, 
uh, Matthew 16 here, what we see Jesus is prophesying. Notice what he says. He says, upon this rock I will build my church. So that tells me that the church as we know it today did not exist in the Old Testament. The church as we know it today. Now, listen carefully. There was an ecclesia. There was a church in the Old Testament. To be a church or ecclesia simply means to be called out. So Israel was a church. It was an ecclesia. It was a called out group of a group of people. Okay? So there was a church in the Old Testament, but not as we know it today. Where people are baptized into one body, the body of Christ. It wasn't like that in the Old Testament. So Jesus, listen to what he said. He said this very clearly. He said, upon this rock I will, future tense, build my church. So although we have Israel foreshadowing the church as it is today, as a type in the Old Testament, as a people who were called out or separated, they were not in the Old Testament known as the church as it is today. They foreshadowed it, they typified it, so on and so forth. So Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he did that A.D. 30 through A.D. 33. Now I say that because there's a difference of opinion. When was the Holy Ghost poured out? Was it A.D. 30 or was it A.D. 33? When you start studying chronology, it's very difficult to pinpoint the year. So I'm not going to get into all that because I'm not good chronology. But somewhere between A.D. 30 and A.D. 33, the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And when he did that, that was the birthday or the beginning of the church as we know it today. Okay? Because he said he would build it, and he started building it on the day of Pentecost. The problem we have today is we have a jealous Jesus on our hands. Because we're going around trying to build his church. He said, I will build my church. And yes, we're involved with the body of Christ. We're involved in evangelizing the world. But it's not me that's building his church. He's building his own church. Amen? So we start trying to build the church of the living God. That's when you start having problems. Because the board, so-called board, wants to control the pastor wants to control everything. It's just, it gets a huge mess because everybody has an opinion about how the church should be built. There have been church splits over what kind of colored carpet you're going to put in the church. And I'm talking about the building. And it's because people, are, they don't understand that it's the Lord that's building his church. They want to put their hands all over it, you know, and then divide over it because they're building it. Amen? Or they'll get together and they have all these plans and you know maybe the pastor, maybe the board whatever, trustees or deacons or whatever eldership, we get together we're gonna, what are we going to do this year? Okay, this is what we're going to do right. and they plan all these plans and after they get through planning, planning the plans then they say Lord bless our plans what they should have done was ask God what he wanted to do and that's where we have a problem in the church because everybody has an idea, a thought about how something should be done. 
God chooses to build his own church. That means I, as your pastor, need to be in tune with him, and you need to be in tune with him. Because he's the one that's giving the order. Struggling to death, Pentecost 80, 30 to 33, in uh, fulfillment of that peace, he started the church. That was the birthday of the church. So he said he will bring in build his church. I want him to build it, don't you? I just want to yield to his spirit and his direction. All right, John 14. Let's go over there. We already read this verse to you earlier. John 14, 16. Jesus says, I will pray the Father, he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Okay? So when he comes and starts the church on the day of Pentecost, in fulfillment of that peace, it's him that's he's building that church as he's filling people with the Spirit, the water baptizing his name, and coming into the kingdom. The church is not a building. The church is a people. Called out people that have been baptized into the body of Christ, plunged into the Messianic kingdom, of the living God. Amen? And now we meet as a congregation of people to worship God and to hear His Word preached and to be involved in the evangelization of the world and the teaching of the Word of God to people. Does that make sense to you? Okay. The Bible says when He comes, He comes to abide in us forever. It's not a temporary coming upon the believer, but He's dwelling in us. Okay, Ephesians 2, I'm not going to turn and read all these verses, but Ephesians chapter 2, the church is called the temple. So we are the true temple of the Lord now. In contrast to that physical temple that was in Israel, amen, that was destroyed in 70 AD, in contrast to that physical temple, the Bible says that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we are a living temple now. Not a temple made up of physical stones, but a living temple so that each and every one of you today are, a, are the temple of the Lord. Amen. You are a living stone. And you're fitly framed together, he says. Now, in the temple of the Lord, the physical temple, listen carefully. The physical temple is a type of the temple of the church. So I study that Old Testament temple in order to understand what God is doing in and through his church. Because that physical temple is a type of the spiritual temple, the church. Just like the tabernacle of the Lord in the Old Testament is a type of Christ and his church. So I study those natural things so I can understand spiritual things. But we have replaced a physical temple. We have replaced a natural temple. You are in a higher level now. You're in fulfillment days. You're no longer in shadow days. You are in reality days. Okay? So what we have in the Spirit, we are the temple of the Lord, and we are fitly framed together, and you are living stones in this temple. Now, in that old natural temple, those stones were so close together, you couldn't even put a knife 
That's how closely fit together they were. If you tried to slide a knife in between those stones, you couldn't slide a knife in between those stones. But they were so close together. So he tells you in Ephesians chapter 6, we are living stones. We are fitly framed together. That means we're very close in the spirit. Okay? But we are the living temple of the Lord. Now, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, just like mine is. But corporately as the church, you are also known as the temple of the Lord. Okay, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 sometime, or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it talks about the temple of the Lord. But it lets you know that the church corporately is the temple, and the individual in that church is the temple of the Lord. Does that make sense to you? gives direction to the church. Ephesians 1, 17 through 18. Let's go over there. And read that one. Revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us which we believe according to the working of His mighty power. So it tells us that the Spirit of God comes to illuminate us, to give us direction. Now we've already talked about this. Gifts of the Spirit in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Something we haven't talked about is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Okay? Now, the gifts of the Spirit manifest the power of God. Okay? A manifestation of God's presence in and through that body. But the gifts of the Spirit are different from the fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is the character of God sense? Now listen carefully. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What well, is nine fruit of the Spirit? It doesn't say nine fruits of the Spirit, nine fruits of the Spirit. So it's like one cluster of grapes. Okay, a cluster of grapes. Well, the fruit of the Spirit like a cluster of grapes. You've got one cluster of grapes, you got one fruit of the Spirit. But they are designated in nine different ways. Okay? Now what are the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. That means there's no restrictions. All right, on your how much love you can have, how much joy you can have, how much peace you can have, how long-suffering you can be. Right, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. No. Have one fruit of the Spirit. Ultimately, that's love, and the rest of them come out of love. The difference between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit is the characteristic of God, His character, and the gifts of the Spirit is His power being manifested. So a person can be used in the gifts of the Spirit and not have the fruit of the Spirit. 
I mean, they might be just an arrogant fool, just full of pride and full of themselves. Are you here today? And they might, listen carefully, and they might not even be doctrinally correct. Because the gifts of the Spirit, are you with me here today, do not tell you anything about the person that's being used. The gifts of the Spirit are a manifestation of Jesus. They tell you about Him, not the person. So a person may be using the gifts of the Spirit and not have the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Because God is using that person because He's yielding to the Lord, but He could be doctrinally incorrect. There are some preachers, TV evangelists, they are so far off doctrinally, it's unbelievable how doctrinally incorrect they are. But yet you will see manifestation of the power gifts in their ministry. It's because they pray and they fast and they yield themselves to the gifts of the Spirit. But just because the gifts of the Spirit are taking place in their meetings does not mean that that person is even right with God. Doctrinally or morally. There, there are people out there that are using the gifts of the Spirit, they're not doctrinally correct, and then you find out later that they were living in immorality. And people were still getting healed. At the same time, they were living an immoral life. People were still getting healed under their ministry. So they can be morally wrong and they can be doctrinally wrong. And the gift of spirit still operates within a meeting. Because the gift of the spirit tells you about Jesus, not about the person that's being used. Now, the fruit of the spirit, on the other hand, tells you about character of Jesus or the person who's walking in the fruit of the Spirit is like Jesus. Love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, goodness, meekness, and temperance. These are manifestations of the person. So we want, we don't want just the gifts of the Spirit in our life because that doesn't tell you anything about the person. We want the fruit of the Spirit in our life because that tells you what kind of person is the person that's really full of God and can allow his character to be manifested in our lives. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Y'all even read what I'm saying this morning? Okay. But it's very important for us to get that. So I want the gifts of the Spirit in my life, the manifestation of God's power in my life, and that's wonderful. And you feel that power, you know, it feels so good to be used by God that way. But what about love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, patience, meekness, and temperance? Who are they? That person is really used by God, you know. So where's the fruit? You know what I'm saying? A whole, a whole denominational system can have the manifestation of God's Spirit, gifts of the Spirit operating within it, and those people be the most. Pharisaic person. You understand what I'm saying? What you need to do, if you don't know anything about what I'm saying this morning, I 
about the gifts of the Spirit or about the fruit of the Spirit, we need to assume that it's on to human class. Okay? Because he teaches, we call it new convert class, a new believer class. And he teaches new believers these very things about the gifts of the Spirit. What I'm saying with you right now, I talked to you years ago, new believers. But if you don't know what I'm saying, Oh, it's my responsibility to do the best I can to teach you everything. But that class particularly will teach you, break it down for you, the gifts, break it down for you, the fruit of the Spirit. Because there are, there are spiritual lessons, whole lessons, focusing on the fruit of the Spirit. And you need to go in there, if you don't know about it, you need to go in there and let Brother Jonathan teach you about the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, so on and so forth, so you understand. We can really mess up, can't we? If we're focusing on the gifts, the power of gifts, the manifestation of God. I'm a prophet or whatever. Who cares about all of that? The Bible says if you don't have love, you understand what I'm saying? You'll be burned at the stake. If you don't have love, you don't have meaning. But it's really important is that the walking through tells you what kind of believer you are. Jesus talked about how much how powerful you need by God. And I'm still living for sin. Let me get my system. Get my spirits out of control. So on and so forth. But not we are yeah, we are pretty steadfast about those manifestations, power gifts of God. And I will. I'm trying to this morning. But we also need to be taught about the fruit of Do you see Jesus in the life of that believer? Do you? Really got quiet, didn't you? And that's why people really get messed up because they see we can be abandoned to somebody, even maybe anyone, being used powerfully by God, but their life is a mess. Their life is out of control. They don't have instruction. Because I stand up and preach the word of God to you, or maybe God's using me, anointing me, whatever. That doesn't mean anything. How am I living at home? How am I living at home? How are you living at home? Okay, you just said the scripture. There are a heavy home folks. What kind of lifestyle is the person living? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Lifestyle. Okay. You may have Joab in your congregation that are close to the leadership of the church. Joab. Joab is one of the most carnal people you'll ever read about in the Bible. Carnal, but he was a general in those days. I don't think Joab knew much about God at all. They say he just did. I don't think Joab did. Carnal men in the houses of believers made sense. It's not when you talk about the fruit of the spirit, man. You're talking about something that's very important to God. And that's why I appreciate this church. It's an honor to this church. I've really tried to pass you through the years to not make you a Pentecostal club. Not, not to give you this elite mentality to where you walk around and walk around with arrogance and pride. You, know, you walk humbly with the Lord. Amen. 
Have we all got a ways to go, including myself, in this area? So we need to pray to God. God, I want the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, amen, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, contentment, against this such there's no law. God, give me more love. Give me more joy. Give me more peace. Give me more long-suffering with people. Encourage this word, Brother John, to use us like last week. And uh, again, encourage you to go where you're learning about these things. See, I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I just want to be known as a man of power. I want to be known as a Christian. Like Jesus. And you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you'll see being a Christian. not always just walking around telling everybody, hey, I'm a Christian. <laughs> it's about you walking into a room and they know you're a Christian. And they know you're a Christian because your attitude, your spirit's right. Amen. Okay, so the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 23 through 23. And then, and God, by His Spirit in the church, establishes government. That scripture means Acts 13, the Jesus camp, chapter 3. He, he's the one who determines who's going to be in leadership. He's the one that determines who's called to do what. No missionary goes into mission field on their own. God has to call them to the mission field and send them. No pastor, no preacher teaches on their own. It's not an occupation. It is a calling. You can't be in the ministry if God doesn't call you into the ministry. Okay? So there's government. There's government in the church by the Spirit. Right, you with me? Okay. So he's governing us and we're like to the body. First Corinthians chapter twelve, we're like unto a body. Different parts of the body. Everybody's different, right? You know, some are fingers, some are hands. Big big Jerry came up here to pick out the little kids we got in the truck this morning. He's got so much muscle, even his fingers are big and muscular. I looked at Brother Daniel. I said, I don't even know you can use any finger in that stuff. You know? you know? But everybody's different. You know, some people, their, their fingers or the hands or the feet or whatever, the legs, the eyes, the ears, the mouth, the nose, whatever. Everybody's different in the body of Christ, you know? And, and so we got to be careful about, you know, we got an ear over here in the body. Where are you listening, you know? And then we got somebody with the mouth over here. And the ear wants to hear and the mouth wants to talk, so put them together and you'll be okay. <laughs> but the bodies, you know, we're, we're the whole point being is that we are a body of believers. That means we have a head. See, this is not a headless thing going on. The church, the church, I know, has been organized into an organization, but the church is not an organization. The church is an organization. Living body of believers baptized into Christ has nothing whatsoever to do with any denomination. It's about the body of Christ. And those who are born again, who have been baptized into his body by his spirit, he becomes the head over that people. You can't separate the head from the body. Jesus is the head. We are the body. We receive our direction, our instruction, our leadership. It all comes from the head. Flows down from the head down to the leadership and everything. Amen. You can't separate. 
when I, when I see you, I can see the body of Christ. I can see the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Corporately as we gather together. Not, you know, Jesus separate from us. And we'll talk about that Jared. You see Big Jared right there? I'm talking to Big Jared. He walks around. He would look really strange walking around without a hair. Right? You know, and if somebody walks in after Jared walks into the church, and they, they're carrying the hair up here. And Jared's body's walking over here, and somebody else is carrying his head, you know. And they sit down with his head, and his head's separate from his body. That's the way most churches, a lot of churches operate. Amen. But you can't separate Jared's body from his head. Amen. Come here, Jared. Turn around, everybody. Look at you. All right. This is Jared. This is Jared. His whole body, head, body, everything. This is Jared Cannon. Right? Everybody see Jared Cannon? This is not Jared and then Cannon separate. Right? It's going to be Jared in, his head in with Jared, and then his body's going to walk in without a head. That's Cannon. No, it's Jared Cannon. One person, including his head, Jared. Thank you, Jared. I know. Because you don't want to sit down. I said we wanted to tell you. <laughs> so anyway, that's the way it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you can't separate the body of Christ from the head from Jesus Christ. Right? It's like you can't separate my head from my body. It's not Jerry Carter. Jerry Carter. Same head. Praise the Lord. So we have we are the body of Christ, but Jesus Christ is the head of the body. You understand that? All right, so we saw how the Lord works in the, in the life of the believer and in the church. Now let's go over and see how he works in the world. John 16. How does he work in the world? Of the unbeliever. Okay? Oftentimes I've told you before that... <laughs> When we gather together as a corporate body, that's where you're going to find the manifest presence of God. You're not going to find the manifest presence of God out there in Walmart. We've talked about that before. And God is everywhere. But how is God working outside of the church? How is He working outside the body of Christ? What's the Spirit of God doing in the world? And this is what the Bible says in John 16 that He's doing in the world. Are you with me? 16, John 16. So we'll know who we're talking about. We'll start with verse 7. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And this, this is what he does in the world. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. Now, what is this sin particular that he's going to reprove the world of? It's the sin of unbelief. Okay? So the world that is in unbelief, that doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then what the Holy Ghost is doing right now, it is reproving or correcting the world, the Bible says, of sin. And that sin is the sin of unbelief. Okay? 
and then he goes on and tells us further. When he has come, you are through the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Verse 9, of sin, because they believe not on me. For the Bible interprets itself. The sin that is the truth in the world of is that they do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he tells us of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And so what uh, the Spirit of God is doing in relationship to righteousness is He is showing man his need for salvation. The Spirit of the living God is moving in the world today of the unbeliever, reproving them the sin of unbelief, showing them that they need a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior. How to get right with God. Okay? Number three, and then thirdly, in judgment, officially in judgment. Verse 11, of judgment because the prince of the world is judged. So the third thing he does to the world is he lets the world, the spirit of the living God lets the world know that Satan has been defeated at the cross. Okay? The devil is defeated. So that's what he does as far as the world of the unbeliever. He reproves them of sin, sin of unbelief. Okay, righteousness. He says, because I go to the Father. He, what he's saying is, he, the Spirit of the living God lets the world know how to be right with the Father, how to be saved. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God lets the world know that Satan is defeated. He's defeated at the cross. Okay? Everybody understand that? Would you say praise the Lord? Righteousness of Christ as the Savior of men, salvation through Jesus, but judgment, Satan is defeated. Okay. Okay. So we need Jesus as our Savior. The devil's been defeated by him, and uh, he reproves us just to walk in unbelief in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, the unconverted also, let's go to Acts 24. I promise you I'm almost there. This is what happened when Paul was preaching and uh, speaking to Felix. Now Paul is standing before Felix and Priscilla, right? These two are about as ungodly and about as about as sinful as you can be, about as immoral as you can be. We talked about their history a little bit when we went through the book of Acts. And here this, this preacher standing before them, all right? And uh, he's a prisoner. He's a bald-headed preacher filled with the Holy Ghost named the Apostle Paul. And here are these two sitting in their royal apparel, big shots in the fort. And here's what happens. Bible tells us, verse 24, let's start there. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Priscilla, which was a Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, 
indifference and judgment to come. Felix trembled. Amen. And answered, go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season. I will call for thee. So when Paul started preaching on the northern Holy Ghost, now Paul's a prisoner. He's standing in front of these big shots in Rome, right? Who are completely immoral and forward then. And as Paul is preaching, what's he doing? He reasons of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Why? Well, number one, these people are not temperate. They're not holy. They're ungodly. And when he starts talking about God's going to judge that and ungodliness, amen? And he's telling them righteousness, how to be right with God. They sit there and tremble in the entire God. So what does the Spirit of God do with the unconverted then? He convicts them. He convicts them. That's what happened to Felix here. Conviction came on the man as Paul is preaching. He got convicted. He's so convicted about his life that this man's preaching, he's sitting there trembling. So the way the Holy Ghost works is say an unbeliever comes in this church and the Word of God is preached, they come under conviction by the Spirit of God. But their life is not right. But their life is not temperate. And this judgment is being come upon them. So uh, we have conviction, and obviously here Paul is trying to convince. Felix and, Felix and Drusilla to be saved. So the work of the Holy Ghost is to convince and to convict and to convert the unbeliever. The unbeliever cannot be saved without the work of the Holy Ghost. You understand what I'm saying? You can teach them Bible studies, I can stand up and I can preach the Word of God to them, but without the Spirit of God drawing them working in their life to convince, to convict them, and to convert them. A person cannot be saved without the work of the Spirit. Okay? So we have an example. As Paul is preaching, you know, they probably look down on him because he's a prisoner of Rome. You know, chains, whatever. So as Paul starts preaching, you find out he's really bound. It wasn't Paul, it was him. Paul starts preaching, you know, they might look down on him, but all of a sudden they're beginning to turn to him because they're being convicted of their sin, righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. What is that? It wasn't just Paul talk that did that. That was the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in and through Paul speaking to those people, trying to convince, convict, and convert them. Okay. Your situation where you weren't saved. You come to the house of God and a preacher starts preaching the word of God about righteousness, how to be saved, about living a godly life, and about judgment that's going to come. And you're sitting there and this preacher's preaching, and all of a sudden you just sit there and start trembling because the presence of God is in you. Conviction, you got a hold of your life. Amen. So it's not just a preacher trying to convince you, it's the Lord convicting you. And ultimately you'll be converted as the Lord's work of the Spirit of the living God. This church. Amen. Okay? Everybody understand? Uh, I'll give you some scriptures to look at later on. Acts 1, 5 through 8. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 42. Remember when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost? They were sick in their hearts. Maybe they were convicted by the Holy Ghost. 
Uh, Acts 2, 37, 42, uh, Acts 4, 4, Acts 7, 51, 59, Genesis 6, 3, Old Testament heaven talks about my spirit shall not always strive with him. And that means the spirit of God striving with him, convicting, convincing, speaking virtue, calling them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, calling them to understand that salvation, righteousness, can only come through him and his work. Letting them know that Satan has been defeated Amen. by his finished work. So it's an awesome thing to be the person involved with the conversion of the lost that the Spirit uses to do. Okay, closing. Closing today, symbols of the Holy Ghost. Very quickly. The Holy Ghost is likened unto water. John 7 38. Why is it likened unto water? Because of its cleansing ability. It is likened unto fire. Okay, the Bible says in uh, Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Ghost is fully poured out, the cloven tongues as a fire set upon each of them. So it's likened unto fire. What is that for? It's about the fire of God's Spirit. We're talking about His holiness. And that speaks of judgment against sin. The water cleanses, fire speaks of His Spirit coming. Uh, in holiness, judging sin. Okay? Purge and purify and be enlightened with zeal. It is also likened to the wind, Acts 2 and verse 2, and that's simply the wind, the, the pneuma, the Spirit of God, the breath of God. So when you receive the Spirit of God, you're receiving the breath of God, the breath of life. Uh, we have this, Acts 2, 2, John 3, 8, Ezekiel 37, 9, through 10, remember that army that stood up? And Ezekiel starts prophesying to the wind. Remember that? And the, the Spirit uh, is likened to the wind here, bringing the breath of life. Okay? Do, it's likened unto the do. Psalm 133, 1, 2, 3, Isaiah 14, 5. The do. When did the dew come? That's when he was filled the night, right? He woke up in the morning and was filled. It's when he was filled the night and he falls upon the threshold of Moses. What does it do? It refreshes. Have you ever mowed your grass, especially in the summertime? And you wake up in the morning and the dew is on the grass? It's refreshing that grass. Okay? It's that, that thing that takes place in the night, like the trees get up. That's what happens if the Spirit of the Lord moves in our life. Man, you feel like you've been mowed? Why would you feel like I've been mowed down, man? Thank God for the good Lord giving us blessing. Okay? Also, do is likened to the resurrection. I just give you that. When the Bible talks about the resurrection of prophets, it's likened to the do. Okay? Um. It is likened unto oil. Oil, say oil. Verse 418, Acts 2, 38. First John 2, 20 and 27. And this oil, the reason why it's likened to oil is because of an anointing. In the Old Testament, they came to an anointed prophet preacher, came to oil, because the type of the anointing or the unction of the Holy Ghost. In John, it says we have an unction from the Holy One. I know what unction means. It means an 
anointing. The best way I can explain it to you, unction is like this. Maybe you're up here and you're still trying to preach and teach or you're trying to teach a Bible study or whatever. And you're doing your best, you know, to get your thoughts together and you're trying to speak. And all of a sudden, you notice something that supernatural starts taking place. And it's like this, it just starts flowing out of you. And you're not even really thinking, really even trying very hard. It just starts flowing out of you. And it's like God puts his word on you and some of these things are just sliding out. So that's the best way I know to explain unction or anointing. It's just like the word just sliding out. But like it in the oil for anointing, consecration, enablement, illumination, for healing, priestly function. It's also likened into a dove. Matthew 3 16. What does a dove speak to you? See a dove speaks of purity, it speaks of beauty. So the Holy Ghost is likened in a dove. It's it's beautiful uh, and it is pure. Gentleness and peace. Gentleness and peace. Purity, beauty, gentleness, and peace. Holy Ghost comes to those things. Beauty, peace, gentleness, peace. Think about the Spirit of God in this symbol. But you and I need to be very careful. Because because the spirit is likened unto a dove, it can be grieved. It can be agitated. Right? We have to be a mess understanding. The spirit of the Lord can be grieved. And we may be wanting to work in somebody's life, but because of who they are or what their attitude is or what they're saying, it shuts down. So many of us, we're not careful with our words. We're not careful with our attitudes and, and the way we approach life. Because, because we fail to understand that we can cause the Spirit of the Lord to grieve and send him away. And we're going to leave him instantly. But if God worships because the Spirit is grieved and pure, you understand what I'm saying? And I kept that just fly off. Beautiful and pure. Seal. Like into a seal, Ephesians 1.13. And the seal speaks of ownership. Because we have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the God is in us. He sealed us unto the day of redemption with his spirit. And that seal, when somebody put a seal, a key to a seal, a sealed document, when that seal was put on that document, it was saying that key, he owns that document. Or if they were going to authorize the purchase of something, they put a seal on it. Authorize the purchase of it, it lets them know that land or that property is owned by this individual. So it speaks of ownership, the seal of the living God. Ephesians 1 13, it speaks of authority over us and security in Him. So ownership, authority over us, and security in Him. The Holy Ghost also like to a still small voice. Genesis 3 8, 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. Still small voice. It's the voice.
voice of God within man to bring revelation of his will. For Elijah, your small voice speaking to Elijah, or a force to give him direction and revelation of the will of God. So it's your small voice. It's not like it's an audible, moving voice of God on the outside of you, it's just on the inside. Let God speak to you by a still, small voice, and it's always Spirit of God is also likened to the finger of God. Luke 11 and verse 20. Now, when the Spirit of God is likened to the finger of God, it's denoting God's power. Okay? By the finger of God, demons are cast out. By the finger of God, people are healed. By the finger of God, miracles take place. We're talking about the Spirit of God. Obviously, God is not getting His finger and coming down, you know, into the church service to see the Spirit's finger. Touching you, right? No, it's a symbol, it's a picture. The finger of God is speaking of God's power being manifested. And also, not just that, what do you do when, when you're talking to somebody and, and you just found that the fact that they're wrong? It's a finger of accusation. So the Lord comes down and the Spirit is moving like the finger of God. He's pointing, pointing, whoa, sometimes I don't even point him. See? It's you. You're wrong. You're wrong. Okay? Has God ever come to you and pointed the finger at you? If he comes and points a finger at you, he's coming to point a finger of accusation against you. This, I'm, I'm, here, I'm pointing the finger at you right here. I'm not because I'm not trying to accuse you, but that's what it does. Accusation. And why does he do that? Well, particularly with a sinner, as the Spirit of God moves on him, he's pointing the finger of accusation to the sinner, and he's telling the sinner his need for salvation, his need to get right with God. And also, ordination. Ordination speaks of the finger of God. You understand that? So ordination is when God chooses you. He points a finger at you. I choose you to be the church. I choose you to be a minister. It's called ordination. Right? Brother Dice used to say it this way. He used to say, you know, there'd be some men that come to him and say, I'm called to preach. I'm ordained to preach. And what they're saying is God pointed his finger at him. And Brother Dice says, but I didn't, I didn't feel like They felt like the finger of God was pointing to them. But that's the whole point. It means ordination as well. When somebody's been chosen by God to do something in the kingdom. Okay? All right, first fruits, Romans 8 23. First fruits. Holy Ghost would like to the first fruits. A lot of you bring first fruits offerings to the Lord from time to time. What do the first fruits say? First fruits are a guarantee of a large harvest to follow. So a lot of people bring first fruits offering to God because they are saying, by faith in the Lord, Lord, I believe that this you provided for me these first fruits. You're going to provide me an abundant harvest in the future. Okay? All right. We did that in the old days, and some people still do it in the new days. But the first fruits in reference to the Holy Ghost, when you 
receive the Holy Ghost, it is a declaration of God that there is a true harvest to follow. Okay. This is Romans 8 24. Full harvest to come, full salvation and glorification of the believers to come. So if I have the Holy Ghost this morning, then that first preacher in me is telling me that I'm going to experience full salvation. That eventually I'm going to receive a glorified body. And be carrying around this sin nature anymore. And the Holy Ghost is the first preacher telling me that it's either going to be better than what it is. Full salvation and glorification of the believer to come. And in Ephesians 1 13 through 14, it's called the earnest of our inheritance. The earnest of our inheritance. How many understand earnest means? How many, okay, how many understand engagement means? Anybody understand engagement means? Not many of you understand that one either. Okay, what else can I use? I don't know what to use. How many understand down payment on a car? Yeah, everybody here. Okay, we got finally found one. But that's what the earnest earnest of our inheritance means in Ephesians chapter one. It means down payment. Okay, it means engagement means earnest money. So it's a down payment of things to come. Right? Just like you give that girl a engagement ring, you're telling her that there's more to come. I'm gonna give you this little engagement ring and I'm telling you about this that we're gonna get married, there's more to come, and I'm gonna give you the big ring when we get married. Right? So that's what happens when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You receive the engagement ring of God. And He's telling you there's more to come. The marriage of the Lamb is coming. Hallelujah. So that's something to look forward to. So obviously, just like the first preacher, also speaks of total redemption to come. And then Luke 24 29, we have the endowment of the Spirit. Luke 24 49. Luke, and we've already covered this briefly, but that means to clothe. Now, God clothes you with His Spirit for salvation. You have the garments of salvation. So, the endowment is the clothing of God with you with His Spirit for salvation. Garments of salvation. But it also is a clothing for ministry. So, you have to have clothing to be in ministry. And this clothing that God gives the minister is this endowment of the Spirit. Okay? He clothes you for ministry. All right? Now, the number seven in relationship to the Holy Ghost, the number seven, Revelation 1, 3 through 4, Revelation 4 and 5, Revelation 5, 6, we have seven lamps. And obviously, these are the seven spirits that are before the throne of God. Obviously, they're not seven spirits of God. There's only one spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 4 says there's one spirit of God. So if you have, if the Bible says there's like seven spirits of God, that means that we have the fullness of that one spirit of God, the symbolic oneness. Okay? So we have the seven, seven golden candlesticks. And the Bible says they are the seven spirits of God. It's telling you that God, or the spirit of the living God, has all knowledge. Okay? Right? Can you stand that? All knowledge. Seven lamps. Seven spirits of God. The light is to illuminate. Light is to reveal. And so we have the complete 
full revelation of God that's given us by the Holy Ghost. And then we also have the seven horns, Revelation 5 and 6. And these seven horns, which are connected with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit living God, speak of His power, His anointing power. And seven speaks of perfection or completion. And in this case, it's all power. So seven horns, He has all power. Seven eyes, He knows all things. He's omniscient. And then we have the seven lamps, uh, illumination. Seven eyes, Revelation 5 6, speak of light. Okay, we're with me still. So the seven in relationship to the to the lamp, the horns, and the eyes is the way this uh, this one. Now go over to Isaiah eleven. We talk about these seven seven spirits or seven potencies. Of the Spirit of God. This will give you more understanding. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 23. There shall come forth the root out of the stem of Jesse, and the branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might. Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. See that? Seven. Okay? Now, are there seven different spirits of God? No. But what we have here is a sevenfold working of the one spirit of God. And that's what Revelation is talking about. It talks about these seven lamps, which are the seven spirits of God, so on and so forth. We just have an understanding. Sevenfold working of the Sometimes when we pray for people, we pray for them and say, if they already have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, we'll pray, Lord, release your sevenfold working, the sevenfold working of the Spirit in their life. Release that into their life. And what is that? The fear of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, okay, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, the Spirit of counsel, might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So that goes with those passages. Titles of his deity. The Holy Ghost is is God, the Spirit of God. It's not two spirits, only one Spirit of God. Remember, we talk about the Holy Ghost is God in action. Okay, do we have two spirits? Some people that teach the doctrine of the Trinity say there's three separate persons in the Godhead. You have God the Father, God the Holy Ghost, God the Son. So that means you would have two spirits. Then Ephesians chapter four says there's one Spirit. Okay. The Bible tells me that the Holy Ghost overshadowed the Virgin Mary and being with child, correct? So, so which, who is the father of Jesus? The father, the first person in the Godhead, or the Holy Ghost, the third person in the Godhead? If they're separate persons, you've got two fathers with Jesus. Okay, so they're not separate persons. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Ghost. So I'm going to give you... Um, Statements in the scripture that refer to the Holy Ghost as being God. Okay, so he's called the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 3 16. He's called the Spirit of the Lord God, Isaiah 61 1. He's called the Spirit of the Lord, 
Verse 418. Oh, the Spirit of the living God, second to 23. Acts 10, 20. Oh, the Father. Okay. Acts 16, 6 through 7. Oh, the Spirit of Jesus. In Ephesians 4, 30. Oh, the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 8 and 9 is called the Spirit of Christ. 1 Peter 1 11 is called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Okay? Hebrews 1 19, the Spirit of His Son. Galatians 4 6, the Spirit of God. Maybe 1 Corinthians 6. If I may have, when we go back over and get these scriptures aligned up for so getting in the right of order. Okay, we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, the Spirit of the Lord God, Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord, Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the living God, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, the Spirit of the Father, Matthew 10, 20, the Spirit of Jesus, Acts 16, 6, and 7, the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 4, 30, the Spirit of Christ, Acts 8, 9, um, 1 Peter 1, 11, and then of Spirit of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.19, the Spirit of His Son, Galatians 4, 6, the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 3, 7. Okay. Yeah. Alright? Good? Okay, so that proves that the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of the living God, that He is God. Thanks to every person who's out here. Appreciate you guys. Attributes of the Spirit, last thing I'm going to say, just a few of them. I'm not going to give them all to you. Just a few of the attributes of the Spirit of wisdom, knowledge, counsel, might. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. If you just keep going, if you've ever read those to you, you'll find all seven attributes. We have grace, Zechariah 12, 10. We have judgment, Isaiah 4, 4. We have burning, Isaiah 4, 4. We have the breath of the Almighty, Job 32, 8. It says that the Spirit raised up Jesus, Romans 8, 11. Called the Comforter or the Advocate. John 14, 16, and verse 26. And the attribute of unction, 1 John 2, 20. That's just a mention of a few. So, anyway, in closing, the Old Testament, everything that the Old Testament said about the Holy Ghost, we have now, and we have much more in the New Testament days. We live in better days today than we did even then. So, these, these are the features of the doctrine. Father, we thank you right now for your spirit, for your anointing. We thank you for your presence, God. Thank you for giving us understanding, Lord, by your word. We give you all praise and glory. We thank you for what you're going to do in and through.